0: A Tricky Kid Media Original, distributed by iHeartRadio. Are we ready to party? Need something fun to listen to on a weekend night? Or a long drive? And or just want to get down at any time? You've come to the right place. I'm Tabby Cat, and you are in the mix. You've watched his Twitch streams, learned from his YouTube DJ tutorials, laughed till you cried during one of his many podcasts. Now it's time to just dance with DJ Tricky Kid.
1: Hey, everybody. Joining me this week uh, is author Dan Charnis. You know him from the big payback, you hip-hop fans out there to listen to the show. He has a new book called Dilla Time. And if you're a hip-hop person like me, you know at some point in your life, you have wanted to try to, at the very least, climb the mountain uh, that is the J. Dilla world, whatever, and this man has taken it on and has conquered it. My man, Dan Charnes. Dan, how are you, sir?
2: Man, I'm great. It's just an honor to be here, sir.
1: I love this book so much, and it's something that's so important to me that I've always wanted to know more about and learn about. How did you take this on? How did this start for you? Walk me through it.
2: Oh, where to even begin? I think um, it started when I made my first trip to Detroit as a record executive and producer with uh, the producer who was then known as JD. I had signed an artist to Rick Rubin's label, American Recordings. We were making Chino XL's second album and Chino and I had a budget to work with the best. And we both decided we wanted to work with this kid JD, who had only been around for about four years, but had done great stuff with The Farside and Tribe Called Quest, and we had just heard uh, this sort of bootlegged Slum Village album. So we were—we really wanted to do it, and to do it right, we wanted to go to Detroit because we heard that's the way you do it. Drove out to his basement in Compton's, down to the basement. There's. Common Sense. I was still calling him Common Sense at the time. What's Were Common really? Sense doing here? Yeah, I had no idea he was taking like water for chocolate with JD at that moment. Wow. Uh, this is in the summer of 99. So we spent a few days there. Uh, very uneventful and frankly, not something that I was trying to document as a journalist either, because it had been about seven years since I had written for the Source magazine. Okay. And I was there in my capacity as record executive. I left my camera at the damn hotel. I didn't realize the level of history that was happening in that basement at that time.
1: When did Jay Dilla become on your radar?
2: Well, the first moment of recognition was back in 95 when I first heard Runnin'. Okay. I was told that there was this new producer for The Far Side after their original producer, Jay Swift, had left. How could anybody replace Jay Swift? Yeah. We thought. Yeah, right, right. And of course, Runnin' made that argument immediately, but it wasn't until I came back from Detroit and we started mixing the Chino XL album that I had my rhythmic epiphany. I was listening to a song called "Don't Say a Word" over and over and over again because that's what you do when you mix a record. And I, I was listening to the drums, and I said, "What? What's wrong with those hi hats? Why do they?" Are they swinging? They sound off. I was so intrigued by this that I literally went out of, I was listening in my, went back to my studio, sampled the the piece of music, put it up in my digital audio workstation, lined up the waveform with the time grid and realized the hats were actually right on time. The snare drum was coming in early. Why, Why is he doing that? how is he doing that? Why does it sound so good? (laughs) Uh, And it was right around that moment, this is the year 2000, that other producers start incorporating those rhythmic signatures into their work. So that was the moment that I realized, oh, what JD is doing is actually beginning to influence, realize that it was having an impact on traditional musicians as well.
1: And Mm -hmm. you're reading a book that is actually can make you a believer in very simple terms. Talk to me about, about how important that was for you, for, for it not to be an elite language, but in every person language.
2: That's a great question. Uh, I am a professor. I teach young people about importance of music and musical figures. So I'm in a habit of to make simple but strong arguments about musical figures. And when I started teaching my music history course at NYU back in uh, 2014, Jay Dilla was somebody I taught in the last class, not only because my students knew him, but they were also influenced in many ways using some of his rhythmic innovations. Jay Dilla invented a new rhythm time feel in music. In other words, a way of feeling time for musicians and programmers. What does that mean? Yeah. Well, popular music has had generally two time feels, what we'll call straight and swung. And what does straight and swung mean? Essentially, it's even beats versus uneven beats. Straight is this, one and two and three and four. And you know what that sounds like. That right. makes sense. That's even. Swing is one and two and three and four. And. A different feel. It's right. uneven. And now that swung feel evolves out of the American context, right? It's not European in derivation. It comes from the presence of Africans and their descendants on this continent. In some ways, it is a um, context, right? Right. So uh, these are the two time fields that we've been playing with. And I often play my students Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody as a way to illustrate the difference between the two. Again, we're just looking for simple ways to talk about this stuff. And that didn't change in American music until around 1998, see, in a basement in Detroit on a drum machine, found a way to collide straight rhythms and swung rhythms simultaneously, putting them in degrees of conflict with each other that uh, created a kind of rhythmic friction that feels like it's limping, We use these words, right? Limping, loping, drunken, sloppy, but it's not sloppy. It's intentional. And what's essentially happening is when you're pitting straight rhythms against swung rhythms, it's like being in a car going 55 miles per hour. And then somebody comes along and says, no, go 70 miles per hour. And then somebody else comes along and says, no, go, go 55. So you feel like you're speeding up and slowing down, but you're still maintaining this tempo. That's that elastic, I guess is what I'm looking for. Sure, the elastic sure. feeling of a JDB. And that is the time field. The first, not only is it the first time field to completely arise on a machine, but it's also the first time field to jump from the machine to man. That's when Questlove and D'Angelo said, okay, he's doing this on a machine. Can we do this? with our traditional instruments, with drums and bass and keys. And that was what gave us voodoo. And of course, you know, voodoo by D'Angelo in the year 2000 had an enormous effect, especially in jazz. Oh, yeah. Uh, Jazz musicians started incorporating that time feel. So dilla time is something like straight, like swung, that is felt in all genres of music. When I came back from Detroit, it took me a while to even realize what was going on in the demos and tracks that. I had been listening to for three quarters (laughs) of a year and I think the next step for me is when I finally started writing again for magazines in in around 2005 I moved back to New York I was in graduate school for journalism at Columbia Uh, I I pitched an idea of uh, about JD's influence on this new generation of programmers and that is when I found out that he was sick because I went For an interview with him or went to request an interview uh, and his manager, uh, one time manager, Tim Maynard said, I don't know, man. I mean, he's in and out of the hospital. And so I never did write that article. And in less than a year, he was gone. Um, It was around that time that I started working on the big payback. And that, that is when JD beats just became part of my, my everyday life because I write to instrumentals, whether it's jazz or house or, and so that was another layer of recognizing his genius as I just listened to these beat tapes over and over and over again. And then I became a teacher and that another step, right? Which I started in 2017. And the idea was, okay, so I'm connected in Detroit. I'm going to take all the students, all 20 students on a field trip for three days to Detroit. We did that for three days in on spring break 2017. And then we came back to New York after that trip for seven weeks. And I taught the class and we were joined in Detroit by, you know, Fat Cat and RJ and Young RJ and uh, Uncle Herm who had the donut shop and we did tours of the Motown museum with Dennis coffee. who was the original funk brother. And yeah, totally. we went to submerge, uh, you know, which was the, the techno museum. So we got a real Detroit and Detroit music education. Then we came back to New York and we met with Questlove and Bob Power. And we talked to Trey from the far side and Perrin Moss from hiatus coyote and created a full experience around what Jay Dilla had done to music and it was in the course of teaching that class that i realized that there was very little for people to read about Jay Dilla that was musically accurate and that is where the anger comes in my friend yes because i i had become very angry at hearing even people who should know better mm-hmm. even people who make beats and use an mpc drum machine saying stuff like Well, Dilla, you know, that unquantized feel, like all he did was not quantize and that's Jay Dilla. That made me so angry because as a beat maker who, the MPC was not a primary instrument for me at all. But even I knew what Gene did and I knew that that wasn't Jay Dilla's only technique. And I also knew that that wasn't the real point that he had done something far beyond his techniques. What did his techniques do musicologically, music theory-wise. That's what I was interested in. That's was the impetus for writing what I thought was going to be a very sm- thin book about the musical science of JD. And the problem with me is once I start reporting, I can't stop. And so five interviews became 10, became 50, became 100, became 200. And that's how we ended up with a 400-page book on Jay Dilla.
1: Okay.
0: Break and be right back with more Tricky Kid Radio.
1: Some new things on the horizon here. Let me tell you again about Texas Style Wrestling, TSW. They had their massive debut at the end of last year. It was a huge success. And I want you guys to join me on April the 1st Right here in Dallas, just a little bit north of Dallas, and on Addison, uh, at, uh, at Westgrove Drive, forty six hundred. They're the sports complex there. Starting at seven p.m. on April the first, it is going to be one hell of a card. If you're in town for WrestleMania, and you're out of town, or if you're a local, uh, it's a it's going to be a big show, a great lineup. I can't wait. Got some surprises I can't quite share just yet, but uh, I'm so eager. So make sure you stay tuned to this. Uh, right here, uh, each week as we get closer and I'll be rolling out, um, more and more surprises. And until then, also how you can stay up to date is with the TSW streaming app, which is free and it's awesome. Um, I have been wanting to have an app, uh, pretty soon for, for this show. Of course, you know, obviously you guys do it through the iHeartRadio app and where you get your podcast. but I thought about maybe doing something else, man, whoever made this app, they're hired because it's fantastic and I've seen a lot of, it's it's a great streaming platform. So if you can't make it on April the 1st, or if you just enjoy the product and you're not anywhere where our live events are, this is a, a great way to be able to enjoy it in such a professional, professional way. Again, TSW, Texas Style Wrestling, make sure that you're also following them on Twitter come to the event get involved go to their website uh, it is the newest and most awesome thing happening in the in the industry in Texas wrestling in this in the whole wide world of professional wrestling and I'm so excited to be to be involved with it again I'm gonna be your man doing color commentary on April the 1st. Uh, Right here, just north of Dallas and Addison at 4600 West Grove Drive at the Sports Complex there. Get your tickets now. Don't miss it. Get the app. Get the merch. Get involved. Once again, TSW, Texas Style Wrestling.
2: What's up? This is the infamous serial wax killer, Beastie Boys, DJ Assassin, Mix Master Mike. And you're tuned into my man, DJ Tricky Kid. Don't be a clown. Don't sleep. Check it out, y'all.
1: I wanted to know what is your what is your relationship with the MPC?
2: Well, you know, my setup was actually this more of James Yancey's original setup, which was the SB twelve hundred. That was the the machine that he used to make his first hits, uh, running and stakes as high. Uh, I think even sometimes by the brand new heavies was all was all done on an SP-1200 with an outboard sampler for more sampling time. And for me, uh, it was a combination of the SP-1200 and an ASR-10 back when I was producing professionally in the 1990s. Um, Later on, of course, it went like a lot of folks to digital audio workstations. But what was really interesting is that there was a big difference between the SP-1200 and the MPC. Think of the SP, for those of you who don't produce... (laughs) Music In the 1990s, for hip-hop producers, the SP and the MPC were like Coke and Pepsi, right? They, they were both means to get to an end. And what that end was to create a sonic collage out of different uh, source materials, drums, little snatches of harmony and melody and vocals, and to create a finished song. So... Uh, essentially you take all those little bits and pieces and you sample them into the drum machine and you use uh, the clock, the sequencer of the drum machine to put all those things together. And James was a master at both machines, but he discovered in the late 1990s that the MPC had MPC had a little bit more functionality than the SP anyway. It had more sampling time. You could sample in stereo. Um, It had a a much more elaborate sequencer, but it did else too. When you use the swing function on an SP, which was a way to make the beats uneven in various degrees rather than even as we said before, when you would swing it on an SP, everything swung. If you had a kick drum, a snare, a hi-hat, everything would be uneven, but the MPC allowed the programmer to severably affect or not affect s- sounds with swing. So you could quantize some elements and not quantize, meaning uh, auto correct to, right. to put them, align them perfectly. grid. You could swing some elements and not swing some elements. And then there was this other function called shift timing. Right, uh, And it's, of course, it's very familiar to us on computers. Now you just point and click and drag something back, yeah. but this wasn't, this is the 90s. Yeah. to allow you to move segments and sounds backwards or forwards in time by little incremental amounts, ticks essentially. And these are the tools that James Yancey used or misused, if you prefer, to give his production a rhythmic feel that was almost alien. Now he was playing with time before this. Right. And he had other techniques. He, yes, he did play his elements freehand without quantization. He did. He also did something I call deceleration. And we don't talk about that enough. That what James would do is he would take a, a sample of something, right. somebody playing guitar, and he would slow it way down. And when you slow a, a sample of a human being playing an instrument down, what happens is you elongate whatever mistakes they make. And he loved that sound. And you can hear it in the, the decelerated samples of songs like Fall in Love, oh, Conan yeah. Gardens, uh, Players. These are all, these, uh, the She Said remix, of these are all slow damn bits. Yeah. Uh, he put out this beat tape called another, we call it another batch now. That's the beat tape that I got from him take those two chino records and you hear unmistakably the sound of the mc being used and or misused and interestingly enough dude like i've been doing these interviews you know for the last month as this book has been rolled out and i will say this is the very first interview that i have done where the interviewer broke out an mpc so i am i am fully impressed number one
1: Portishead head fans will recognize that there's a great sample that they use from the song she said when what is the height for you
2: I see now, now you and I are in sync because that was number two One of the things that that I have to say about jD uh, especially with regards to doing interviews about this is that Dilla invented Dilla but not everything that Dilla did was Dilla that's
1: that's right? it
2: that's it so the first Phase of his will go from say 94 to 98, was basically using only two techniques, which was playing, for not using the timing correct functions of the drum machines, and deceleration. These were ways that he played with time to allow the sound of error into the mix, even though his placement of things was not erratic. Yeah. Starting in 98 begins this next phase, which is the dilettante phase, which is the rushed snare, which is the exaggerated, and you can hear it at its peak with Welcome to Detroit in 2001. (laughs)
1: Folks, this is Brian O'Halloran. You might know me from such iconic classic films as Clerks, Ratch, Chasing Amy, Vulgar. Anyway, you're listening to Tricky Kid Radio.
0: Hi, this is Marilyn Gigliotti. Most people know me as Veronica from Clerks. It ain't 37. Tricky Kid Radio with Roy Turner.
2: Hey, everybody. This is actor and musician Scott Schiaffo, best known from the Kevin Smith films Clerks and Vulgar. You are listening to
1: Tricky Kid Radio with Roy Turner.
2: Then he moves into, I guess, what you might call a more low-fidelity phase that begins with an EP called Rough Draft in 2003 that he produced in 2002. It also includes the work that he does for J-Lib, Champions And that freeness will also inform what he eventually does in 2004 with the Dill Withers uh, beat tape. Some yeah. People call it the Motown tape, and then Donuts and The Shining. But throughout this, um, there are other little movements, right? He gives up sampling for a while in two thousand one, two thousand two, because he doesn't want to pay. You know, he's now a business owner. He doesn't want to pay. Yeah, and um, it does not go well for him. Uh, I personally don't really favor that stuff, not because he didn't have skill and couldn't have done it he just had been spending most of his life developing his voice as a master of the sampled art form and he had not yet mastered creating music without samples uh, in that way so it's less evocative for me but all it would have taken him i believe is time james is all going to be uh that period from another batch in 1998 to Welcome to Detroit in 2001.
1: It's like Bruce Springsteen's Welcome to Asbury. You know, it's it's like, it's that you can't, you can't disconnect Springsteen from New Jersey, just like you can't Mm -hmm. disconnect Dilla from Detroit. I just kind of feel like if it has that name on it, it's gotta be his best, you know? We talk, we use the word time a lot here. The book is called Dilla Time. We're talking about change of time. But time was unfortunately something that he did not have a lot of. When did it become informed by his illness? Yeah,
2: He was very much a person who was in the present all the time, the eternal present. And that eternal present allowed him to stay focused, allowed him to create a prodigious body of work in very little time. He worked on beats very quickly, 15 minutes and done. You know, it was very, very... Um, he was, had a singular dedication, and that has all kinds of qu- consequences. He was a, a stutterer as a kid, and he was very silent. And, you know, he, he cultivated silence and, and cultivated listening as a way of surviving, because to speak stutterer can be somewhat socially risky. Yeah, right, sure. Uh, but he also had this uh, talent. So people were sort of drawn to him. There were also ways in which James was underdeveloped socially because he had been sort of spoiled by his parents. Story about Erica Badu coming to Detroit and he plays her a bunch of beats and she's like, "Ah, nah, I don't want any of those. I want to make something together. And he feels some kind of way about that. Like, who is this person telling me? Who is this famous person coming to Detroit to my basement telling me to make a make a no, you make it. That was a sex <laughs> what it was, though you make it. And of Erica, of course, experienced this, this this sort of magnanimous always teaching me how to make beads. Right. But there was another dimension to that. For sure. But as a, as a result, it grew him up a little bit. I wish I could tell you that my observations of him in that trip were, were profound. They weren't, because I was doing something that I regret now, which is I was talking. I was entertaining him, I was telling stories, I was just jabbering away. And he was doing his job, which is listening. Right. That's what he does, he's a bionic listener. And what I experienced was his world that he wanted us to be in. We didn't uh, negotiate where we were gonna eat dinner, we went to where he wanted to go. Yeah. Everybody was on James' time. Everybody was doing what James won't do. Yeah. And if James didn't want to do it, we weren't doing it. And Common, of course, tells the best story about this. I had a new recording contract for MCA and Jay has him just waiting at the hotel most of the time for him to come pick him up. And sometimes Jay doesn't come at all. He doesn't trip. He's like, I just, I just want the best out of this guy. And I know he's a genius and I know he's going to give it to me. I just have to be patient. I just have yeah. to wait. James Yancey's advice to people around him was just listen. Just watch. Common learned it too. Just wait. What
1: was your relationship with him while he was alive? Beyond that initial trip, did you guys ever have any type of of of, of any real interaction?
2: No, uh, it was really very just that that one professional moment. I cannot explain really logically my path towards writing this book i didn't want to be anybody's biographer yeah. spend four years writing a book about somebody else right yeah. you no know? um but of course it's just a compulsion i was compelled to do it and of course now it completely makes sense oh he's totally worth it man. it's such a pleasure man real just this was aces
1: thank you brother i appreciate it dan we'll talk soon All right,
2: take care indeed take care, all right.
1: Once again, I'm your boy DJ Tricky Kid. I hope you'll follow me on Instagram under DJ Tricky Kid. You can find me on Twitter under Tricky Kid and the number 2. Don't forget, I'll be calling the action ringside April 1st at the TSW Studios in Addison, Texas the day the night before WrestleMania with lots of great stars. Mariah May and Selena De La Renta and Palo Mayfield and Jasmine Allure. This is going to be a great, great night of wrestling action. Anyway, get involved. Get on Tricky Kid TV on YouTube. And once again, I will see you next week.
0: For more music, DJ tips, and instruction, follow along on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash DJ Tricky Kid and on Instagram at DJ Tricky Kid. And don't miss exclusive sets and masterclasses by following along on Twitch at twitch.tv forward slash DJ Tricky Kid and follow me, Tabby Cat at twitch.tv forward slash Tabby Cat